Hello. My name is George Catlin. This is the second of two interviews with Roar Biones, author of Growing a New Economy. We're speaking together via a conference call, and there are many others on the line and still more joining us as I'm speaking who have read the book and discussed it in biweekly regional calls. As the interview goes on, we'll be inviting questions from others to broaden the conversation, and I've got a list of a bunch of questions for Roar, um, which, you know, will provide a nice sort of skeleton to what we're doing, but again, really feel free to see, you know, if there are issues that are coming up in your mind that you want to pursue with Roar, and then we'll look for those hands that are raised and um, get you into the conversation. So, Roar, um, really glad that you're here again, and thank you so much for being willing to do this with us once more. Oh, thank you. Thank you, George. Good, good. So in the first interview, we went over the nature of the problem posed by the current neoliberal capitalist economic structure. And in this interview, we want to concentrate on the solutions to those problems that are suggested in the book. But before we get into those suggestions, it seems to me that it would be a good thing to just review the essence of the problem that we're trying to solve. So my first question would be, in a nutshell, What's wrong with capitalism? Okay, um, that's a good question and, and also a big question. But um, I think that in the framework of Proud, I think it is important to acknowledge the difference between Proud and capitalism. And I think a major difference is that Proud acknowledges two broad human sentiments. One is the sentiment of uh, selfishness, of selfish pleasure, and the other is the sentiment of sharing and cooperation. And proud economics is based on those two sentiments, we could say. Capitalism, on the other hand, I would say is based on the first sentiment primarily and not the second. Uh, in fact, Adam Smith, the so-called father of capitalism, he said in uh, so many words, if the individual makes profit, we will all profit, we will all benefit. In other words, capitalism is based on this idea that we have a selfish gene, so to speak, and this selfish gene is the main driver of economics, of inventions and of productivity and uh, in capitalism in general. And as we all know, capitalism is what we think of as economics uh, in many ways. So if the individual is successful, according to capitalism, then the group will also be successful. But as we also know, this is not always the case. In fact, it's often not the case. In economic terms, this selfish human gene leads to profit, yes. But that is also the problem, according to Proud, with capitalism, uh, because this profit motive, when that is the main driver of economics, and that is the sole focus, it leads to inequality and exploitation of humans and uh, nature. So when that singular focus of the profit motive or the selfish gene is the main, is really the main problem with capitalism, as I see it. The need to accumulate and to create uh, and innovate leads to competition, which to some extent is healthy, but uh, only up to a point. When competition is the main driver of economic trade, it eventually leads to inequality because some will get very rich and some not so rich. 
A stark example in our economy in, in the United States is that the average fast food worker makes about 19,000 a year, while the average fast food CEO makes about 23 million in annual salary. So that's a huge difference, some 1,200 times difference between the lowest pay and the highest pay. So an incredible inequality. And as we have seen um, during the growth of capitalism, unfortunately, the inequality has uh, risen, has grown, and it has not shrunk. It has not, as Adam Smith envisioned, benefited the masses, at least not in the global sense. Even in, in the United States, we, we know that there's a lot of inequality and, and a lot of issues uh, regarding this. So uh, that is the reason Prop says that we need to limit uh, capitalism to small enterprises because if capitalism is allowed to fulfill its basic philosophy, then it grows too big and becomes monopoly capitalism and we have a few people that control the economy to the detriment of, of the masses. So um, because we don't have unlimited resources or even money, even though we may have unlimited needs or unlimited wants, unlimited desires, there isn't an unlimited um, source of uh, resources or money, no matter what uh, the people who subscribe to The Secret says that, you know, if you have the right spiritual intention, there's you know, unlimited amounts of everything for everybody. But in reality, that's not the case. So that point needs to be part of the equation in economics as the basics of economics. But it is not part of capitalism. It hasn't been recognized by capitalism. And so, in a sense, capitalism is based on a myth. And we are trying to, I think, demonstrate in the book that this myth has been explained away by economists using mathematics to try to justify this myth. That's, that's one major problem. That, so that reality is not built into the capitalist economy. That is the main problem, that, to take into account that we have limited resources on the physical level. So um, private enterprises needs to have a ceiling on growth and on expansion. That is one of the points in Prout and that we don't see in capitalism. Reform capitalism, of course, has tried to deal with this uh, through taxation by taxing the rich, taxing corporations, and so on. And in some decades, in the 50s, 60s, we did quite well uh, doing that. Corporations were taxed heavily, the rich were taxed heavily, and um, the wealth was spread around in a much more just way than we see today. But since the 70s, that has again changed with trickle-down economics and, um, and so on, neoliberalism. This has again changed, and we see this now with Trump. He, uh, the, the, the tax package that Trump presented is doing the same thing, basically giving uh, you know, incentives to the rich. This has also benefited, of course, the speculative economy. And as we talked about last time, the speculative economy is now the largest portion of the economy. In other words, speculation uh, produces more money than the real economy, much more money. So private accumulation of wealth needs to be limited. Otherwise, we don't create a healthy economy. 
it is in a sense just like as if someone is overeating, we become unhealthy and overaccumulation is unhealthy for the con. It creates a few winners and, and many losers. The second problem with capitalism is that it is a materialistic philosophy and that it views nature as a free commodity, something to be exploited, that nature only has value if it is turned into a commodity. Again, using Adam Smith as an example, I think he had this example of nature as a field, as a follow field, and it is not any use to the economy until you start plowing and, uh, and cultivating that field. Uh, according to Prout, again, nature has both value as a commodity and it also has an existential value. It has value in itself. It has life, and that life has value and, and, and the right to exist. So for human beings, we could say that nature has a value for the economy as a resource, but it also has value in the form of recreation and, and peace, you know, a place to meditate, to enjoy. It has value as an ecological system, and that ecology is, again, a source from which all life and economics comes from. Without nature, there wouldn't be any economy at all. This is a vitally important aspect that is not acknowledged by capitalism. However, again, we see that green capitalism is taking this into account and, and again, trying to reform capitalism by taking these issues into account. So that's a good sign, but still the profit problem with capitalism is not dealt with by green capitalism, and that is why I think we need a new uh, system. We need to restructure the economy and not just keep reforming it. So if we focus on these two main problems with capitalism, the selfish gene, which leads to accumulation and profit, and the fact that nature is a free commodity, then we get the kind of world we have today with material inequality and on the one hand and environmental uh, destruction on, on the other. Some other problems with capitalism is the dynamics between centralization and decentralization of the economy. Capitalism tends to centralize economics, again because of the profit motive. It leads to a centralized economy or a monopolistic economy with large corporations, since it does not put proper value on decentralization, or we could say the, the local economy. And we use uh, American agriculture as an example, uh, which has killed small farming over the last few decades, basically. Although it is coming back through the environmental movement in the form of small farms, small organic farms, and, and farmers markets, but on the whole, that is drops in the bucket. The big uh, farmers or the agribusinesses have outcompeted the small farmers, the family farms. They're not, no longer able to compete with the big agri agribusinesses. And now these agribusinesses are competing with China. Uh, an example of that is that China has become the major garlic producer for American garlic lovers. Uh, honey from China is uh, more um, common in the U.S. than American honey. So these are just some simple examples of the problems with capitalism when we don't take care of the local economy. The Chinese now also own large interests in American food giants and seed companies, making food production into a global business and a global competition. So capitalism, due to 
this sole emphasis on the selfish profit motive leads to destructive uh, competition and, and therefore inequality. And the shallow view that it has on nature as a free commodity leads to a destructive exploitation of the environment. So those two issues, I think, are the two main problems with capitalism. It's fascinating to me to hear this, Rory, and as I think about it, I realize that it also partially explains why capitalism has had such a good run for 150 years or so, because these problems really just emerged with time. It's almost like early-stage capitalism was relatively benign, but now in its more mature stage, we really run into the problem of this single motivation of profit, profit, profit has created these tremendously rich, centralized people who are um, controlling more than they really should be and apparently not very concerned about the rest of the world. Is that an evaluation or a way of looking at it that you would agree with? In some ways, that is true. On the other hand, if we look at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when capitalism really took off, we would see factories with child labor Grown-up laborers working 12, 14 hours a day. They didn't have holidays. They were working on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays. So there was tremendous exploitation, I think, from the very beginning of capitalism. However, on a global scale, we didn't see the problems at that time. Uh, you know, it started with the Industrial Revolution in England and then spread throughout Europe and then to the United States. What we're seeing now is that economy on a global scale uh, in the form of, you know, global warming is one issue that you were just mentioning, the floods and the fires. So we're seeing these effects that global capitalism has on, on the environment. We're seeing it in terms of the inequality on the planet where we have, you know, the north relatively rich and the south relatively poor and tremendous exploitation in so many ways. So I think that Capitalism has been a mixed bag since the beginning, and it has been justified by um, a philosophy that was embedded in the system itself and held up by, for example, the justification of uh, social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. That, that is really, the, we could say, the social philosophy of capitalism. And so it was justified that this is how nature works. You have to be strong, you have to be tough, discounting the fact that nature is also very cooperative. I think it was um, Peter Kropotkin, a uh, Russian anarchist, actually. He was also a biologist, and uh, he was one of the first to point out the fact that nature is also very cooperative. But again, the, the philosophers, the spokespeople for capitalism, has not taken that into account. They are focused on on the, the competitiveness in nature. So again, I think, yes, you're right in many ways that it has become worse in many ways. But as I said earlier, the systemic defect of capitalism has been there since the beginning. That makes really good sense to me. Um, and I'm convinced by that argument that right from the beginning there was a flaw in capitalism. And, you know, part of me wants to think that that's a flaw that has to do with human nature, that there is this kind of greedy aspect of every one of us, this selfish piece of ourselves that's worried about our own survival first and foremost, and then 
once it starts getting oriented toward taking care of me first, it sort of never knows when it's done enough of that and just keeps doing that. And then there's this other voice, obviously, in all of us that's relatively quiet in many, that, but nevertheless cares about the good of the whole and is interested in some kind of cooperative model where everyone does, in fact, benefit from what we do. And I guess I'm hoping that the reality is that humanity is evolving to the state now where that second voice is gaining strength. And though it may not seem that way when we just look at the United States right now, maybe in reality that voice is in fact getting stronger and more and more people throughout the world are coming more and more to an awareness that, yeah, you know, we don't just want to be singly, myopically focused on taking care of ourselves. We need to be thinking about taking care of everybody and taking care of nature as well. Um, So, you know, is that something you'd agree with? You see a kind of gradual evolution of consciousness toward a kind of state wherein we're more willing to bring in this second aspect of Prout around the sharing principle? Yes, I I think that that was well put. Um, Yes, I do think that there is an evolution, uh, and I think that is our hope. I think that we're seeing a groundswell of, of consciousness raising around these issues. At the same time, as I said earlier, it is also getting worse in so many ways. So we are in a very interesting situation now where, yes, the consciousness and the awareness of the need to share the wealth and to share the habitation and the utilization of this planet with our friends, animals, and plants that consciousness is on the rise, for sure. At the same time, we see uh, also a backlash of uh, a sort of degenerative consciousness of nationalism, uh, me first, and, and, and tremendous growth of, uh, of corporations as well. However, I think that, I'm, uh, put it this way, I'm very hopeful that the cooperative consciousness, the sharing awareness uh, will win out in the, in the long run. Yes, I'd say everything depends on that at this point. I mean, it's perfectly clear that we can't just keep competing and competing and competing because we're going to end up with everyone's going to lose ultimately at that game. Let me ask you a more practical question sort of around education, economic democracy advocates, which, as you know, is ultimately an advocacy organization. So ultimately, we're going to be advocating for specific changes in laws and practices at national, state, and local levels. But before we get to those specific changes, it seems to me anyway that a great deal has to be done to introduce people to all the ideas that you've been discussing tonight and all the ideas that would stand behind economic democracy. So I'm thinking of a kind of two-step or at least two-tiered process that we're going to have to pursue, one being major educational effort and another being this advocacy um, effort. Is that a breakdown that makes mm-hmm. sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that education is so important. Creating an awareness, a change of consciousness, I think that that is absolutely important. So yes, I, I would... Um, think that that's the right way to do it, to educate, to study, to learn, and spread the awareness about these issues that is very important, because then when you do advocacy, then you can uh, explain the reasons behind the advocacy so much better. And it is also very important to study the situation on the ground. Let's say, for example, if you're working in a local area, 
and you want to improve the local economy, it is very important to study and learn and to be educated about what's going on in the local economy. You know, what are the resources, for example, here in Western North Carolina where I live, what are these resources in terms of uh, water, in terms of land, in terms of agricultural sources and so on, farms? So yes, this kind of education is very, very important. And then when you go out and do advocacy work, uh, activist work, you're so much better equipped to um, convince uh, policymakers uh, about what you're, you're about and also, uh, you know, the voting uh, populace. So I, yes, I, I would agree with that uh, way to do it. That's nice what you said, because that actually also brings in the third leg of economic democracy advocates, which has been developing, which is our research wing. And, and it, you're, you're so right that, you know, there's a lot of research that goes into good education and then goes into good advocacy. And there's plenty of things which need to be known and understood, which aren't yet obvious to anybody. And so we're hoping mm-hmm. to research yes. Provide some insight there. Okay. So yes, re- research is very, very important. Yeah, good. I'm going to change a little bit now and digress for a minute into a different line of talk for a minute. And as I do this, I just want to remind everybody who's listening to raise your hand if you have questions that you want to be asking. Raise your hand and we'll get to you. Roar, what I want to do next is digress for a minute into the work of George Lakoff, who's a cognitive scientist at Berkeley, who addresses the importance of framing conversation in a way that supports one's core values. And the thing I like most about Lakoff is that I think he's got a really good insight into the models of life, really, that separate conservatives and liberals in our country now. And it's a question I've been you know, scratching my head about you know, really strongly over the last year. And I just want to run his model by you and see if it makes any sense to you. And then we'll get on to, okay, if it does, what what does that have to do with, you know, all the things we're talking about? So anyway, in his model, he says that what conservatives really seem to endorse is a model with a strong male leader. And it's a model of family and of life in general. So their model is based on a strong, dominant male who knows what is right and what is wrong. And it's his job to direct the rest of the family. Children are seen as inherently pleasure-oriented and need to be disciplined into a moral and productive approach to life. And with this view, morality and productivity go together. In fact, producing a lot, being prosperous, is seen as the highest form of morality. And it's believed that if everyone maximizes their own personal gain, just like what Adam Smith said, that will create the optimal society. And you can see how this model would strongly oppose all entitlement programs as those are understood to provide benefits that have not been earned. It would also foster a view of international relations in which the most prosperous and powerful country, that would be us, is expected to impose its superior moral vision on the rest of the world. And so Lakoff's saying that, you know, conservatives in general basically come from this mindset of that's how the kind of world and family should be ordered. And then he says that liberals, on the other hand, uh, favor what he calls a nurturing parent model of the family and life in general. And within this view, children are good and need to be supported in developing their unique capabilities. Underprivileged populations are seen to be deserving of whatever support they need to have a fair chance in life. And the aspirations of the so-called developing nations need to be understood and supported by the wealthy states. This conceptualization makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it explains 
explains a good deal about the inability of liberals and conservatives to respect one another in this country right now. And I'm sort of thinking that whatever progress is going to be made in our country going forward is best coming out of an informed awareness of this possible underlying different worldviews. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that way of thinking about things and how it might fit into your model. Well, I do think that it makes a lot of sense what uh, Lakov is saying. There, there definitely are these two ways of looking at the world. Certainly here in America, I think that that is very, very strong in this country. I think that, um, if I'm not mistaken, Paul Ray, who developed the idea of cultural creatives, had a similar idea. And he was saying that it is the cultural creatives, you know, the liberals that will bring about the change. And that's where, the, you know, the change is going to come from. In many ways, I would agree with that. On the other hand, it may be a little more complex. And I would like to throw in a different model coming from India and from, from Sarkar, which is a four different types of psychologies. One is the warrior, one is the intellectual, one is the merchant, and one is the worker. And Sarkar said that Society is often controlled by either one of them, or at least either one of the three. The worker rarely controls society, but the warrior often does, the intellectual and the merchant. And, and now we are in this merchant era, the capitalist era. So uh, this, is a, this is, of course, a little different way to, to look at it. But I think it is important to acknowledge that there are different archetypes. And I think that what is important for liberals to acknowledge is perhaps that this patriarchal, we could maybe call that the warrior, is an archetype that is real and that we need to acknowledge. And, and that has a role. But the problem becomes, Sarkar says, when the patriarch or the warrior becomes an exploiter or becomes the only uh, leader in town, you know, that's the problem. Same, same thing if, if you have an intellectual leadership. Um, and we see that, for example, he, uh, Sarkar talks about the evolution of society. From uh, the worker society was the, the society that Karl Marx actually studied and, be, and became in many ways the inspiration to his idea of communism. When uh, we could say early societies were living together in large families, in large tribes, sharing everything together. And, and as we know, Karl Marx also studied American Indians and learned from them about the idea of sharing and, and what he envisioned as you know, the perfect communist society without the state and all that. So yes, I do think that the cultural um, creatives or the liberal mindset is very, very important. At the same time, family values are important. Uh, morality is important. Working hard is important. And so rather than pitting one against the other, I think that we need to try to see uh, the positive things in the different models and find ways to collaborate and to appreciate each other's uh, strengths. And, and, and of course also, 
acknowledge some of the weaknesses. For example, I live in a part of the country uh, where um, the conservatives are maybe not in the majority, but there there are plenty of them around there. Um, and uh, there are many of them are my neighbors. So I have to deal with them. And so I uh, face these issues on, on a daily level. And I think it's very important for America to build bridges. And so trying to put all of this together, what Sarkar was saying that the future of humanity is the person that has an integral personality that embodies the warrior, the intellectual, the merchant, and the worker, but is not embedded in either one of them fully. In other words, it's a kind of uh, wise person, a kind of detached person that knows how to fight if that's necessary, knows how to stand up for his right, knows how to study, and knows how to you know, uh, create a business, and knows how to work hard. So I would hope that the future of humanity and the future of America is more of a hybrid personality, or you could say, uh, you know, Sarkar called this person uh, Sadvipra, which is a Sanskrit term, but it, it basically means a person that is an integrated personality. Actually, Ken Wilber has a, I don't know if you are familiar with Ken Wilber, but uh, yeah. he had a similar concept of, of the integral leader. So I think that rather than pitting one against the, the liberal and the conservative against each other, I think that we need to think about where is the common ground. However, when it comes to the issues of economics and what we talked about earlier regarding selfishness and all that, I, I would say that the conservatives have something, to, uh, definitely something to, to learn and something, some myths to overcome. That is for sure. And that is one of the challenges in America. For example, in Norway, where I come from, the people living in the countryside and the people living in the city have a much closer relationship. They're not so much pitted against each other. Their values are more, much more similar. So I, I see that that kind of integration is possible, and I think that that is the future. That makes a lot of sense, and we'd certainly hope to move in that direction. Before I go on, I want to check in with Anita. Anita, do we have anyone who wants to ask a question now? We have John's hand is raised, so I'll go ahead, John, and unmute you, and you have the microphone. Thank you, Roar, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I'm finding oh, that you're, you're welcome. There, are a lot, there are a lot of people that share what's happening with capitalism in terms of what you've talked about in your book. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who like to do something. So I really have two questions. One, how do we reach all these people? And secondly, what can we have them do? They all want to do something, but they don't know what to do to bring about this change. And I don't either. I mean, I, we talk about it, but... What do we do? What do we tell this mass of people that are getting on board slowly, how they can be involved and how they can make a difference, and what can they do? Yeah, these are important questions and also very big questions. You know, I ask myself that (laughs) the same question, you know, what do I do? What can I do? You know, you could say I've written two books about this and I'm trying to reach people that way. So each person, each individual will have to ask themselves, 
what can I do? How can I reach people? So that, that's, that's one important thing, I think. So, for example, if you are a writer, you can write letters to the editor of the newspaper. If you are more of a hands-on uh, person that likes to do activities, let's say, for example, if you are into growing things, you can maybe form, you know, um, a farm community or do something in a local community around that. So I think the first question to ask is, what can I do and what, how can I contribute? Now, on a larger level, I think that what you are doing at EDA, I think is important. You are into education and advocacy. So every organization starts with something, has a goal, has a certain set of values that they want to follow and, uh, and so on. So education and study is very, very important. I think that's the first step. And then find some way of being an advocate. And you've already started that by forming a website. You're studying. You've been studying my book. And then the next step will be to create some kind of advocacy or some kind of movement. Taking an issue, for example, in the local area, if there are certain issues that are pressing in your local area, then take up that issue and form a, a committee and a movement around that. That is one way to go. And then the next phase would be to um, involve politicians, local politicians, to see if policies can be changed and so on. So I think a step-by-step uh, way of doing things is important. And to accept that failures will be made Mistakes will be made, and at the same time, accept that small incremental changes may be as important as the big changes, because the big change is going to come from the small incremental changes. And what is really important, I think, that we walk our talk as much as we can. If we are into local food, organic food, and we are able to grow some, like for example here, um, where I live, we have, you know, some land, so we grow a lot of our own vegetables. Those are small activities that we can do, but we can also be advocates and be writers and be spokespeople for the bigger vision and the bigger activities. So acknowledging the importance of making small changes that can lead to bigger changes and work with that in as many ways and as creatively as possible. I'd like to, Roar, step in here and point to just a few of the specific things that are advocated in your book and through Prout that when I really think about mm-hmm. them pose, they create partially an answer also to John's question. I'm just going to name two of them now and allow you to comment on them if you want. One is, it seems to me, one of the foundations of Prout, which really comes right out of its philosophy, is this idea to try to get cooperatives to be the most common business structure you know, worker-owned cooperatives. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. to me, actually, how many of them there are now in the United States. Someone recently sent me an article about two women who are so sold on the idea of cooperatives that they've left very good corporate jobs to just push, push, push to support the development of cooperatives. And, you know, that's a very specific change. That's something that, you know, we can be looking for ways to implement in our own lives. 
Um, and we can certainly be thinking about, oh, what are the kind of legislative changes that would be necessary to make it more possible for there to be more cooperatives? The other mm-hmm. one that yes. really jumps yeah. out at me when I think about Prout is, is this idea of full employment. I think that that mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. an achievable, important ideal, that there be full employment at a living wage. And so these two strike me as very concrete steps in a direction mm-hmm. which speaks yeah. to the value of Prout. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, as I mentioned earlier, that if we want to change capitalism, if we want to change the economy, we need to restructure the economy. And so, as we mentioned in the book, Prout has a three-tiered structure, which is, in many ways, the best of capitalism and the best of socialism. So, there is the state from, uh, we could say, Washington down to the local level, that control certain key industries such as electricity, water, and so on to make sure that these vitally important features of the economy are available for everyone. And then the largest part of the economy will be, as you said, George, cooperatives. So in other words, the corporations will be turned into cooperatives. And, uh, And then capitalism will be on a small scale. So that's the three-tiered structure of the, of the product economy. And part of that, as you also mentioned, uh, guaranteed employment at the living wage, that is very, very important. For example, here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I, where I live, we have uh, in the city here a living wage campaign, and so many of the businesses now, for example, there is a, an Asian restaurant that don't accept tips because they're paying their workers well. And so you can go there and eat at the reasonable uh, rate, and and you also know that the workers there are paid well. So many uh, initiatives like that are taking place uh, throughout the country. So yes, I, I would agree with that. And also cooperatives, there are quite a few cooperatives in this area as well. And as a matter of fact, on the land that I live, I live in a small kind of eco-village, you know, around the Prama Institute. And so we are now working on starting a farm cooperative. Prama itself is, is kind of um, a cooperative. So, yeah, I think that those two issues are very, very important. Developing a cooperative spirit in business is very, very important. And then at the second issue of, of a living wage, because everybody should have the right to earn enough money to have the basic necessities. That is also an, a foundational issue in, in Prama. It's such a different view. I'm really glad you began this whole interview by talking about, you know, the, the additional piece that Prout brings to the capitalist view, you know, the capitalism being just focused on profit and the Prout saying that, no, there's this other motive, which is a sharing motive and a making it work for everyone motive. It could be called the cooperative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, yeah. I just see that that shows up everywhere. I mean, that's why we'd want a living wage, because we care about everyone having a chance. I find myself, I keep thinking about, um, you know, if there's some phrase which the liberals could latch onto, which we could use as kind of our catchphrase, sort of the equivalent of the flag-waving part that's done by the right wing. And mm-hmm. it occurred to me that this, this thing called the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, which you may not be familiar with, but all of us probably had to say it with our hands over our hearts as school children. And it ends with an amazing line. It ends with a line with liberty and justice for all. And I've really thought, that's actually what we're all about. We're about liberty and (laughs) justice for 
all. You know, real freedom, the kind of freedom which you can only have if you have enough money to support yourself, and justice for all. You know, real justice, mm-hmm. not just um, a kind of punitive, right. legalistic justice, but everyone getting a fair shot. And so, you know, I feel like that language is there within our system. But we just need to bring it to the fore and make it really happen somewhere. Yes, exactly. I, I think that that's very, very important to to point towards those issues in, in the American society, in the American mythology that represents these values. I, I think that is very, very important and, and the best way to bring people together. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful point. Let me ask you another kind of big strategy question, which has to do with strategies going forward. And, you know, you've advocated these incremental changes in the last half hour here. And there's also a thought that I think exists to a certain degree in Prout, and it also exists in the minds of many people, which is that, you know, there's some big crisis coming, and post-crisis is when people are really going to be open to systemic change. Do you have any comment on that? Um, you mean whether change will happen through crisis, or is that your question? Yeah, or incrementally. I mean, lots of us feel like, oh, mm-hmm. this capitalist system must crash at some point. It can't just keep going in the way it is. You know, maybe it'll take the form of a major economic crash or a currency failure or something like that. And then people are going to be ready for, you know, to look at different models. I guess it doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. dichotomy. Yeah, I think that it is very likely that we will have some kind of a crash. I think that is very likely because of the way that capitalism is structured and it, it is inherently dysfunctional. And um, often when we are in a dysfunctional state, we need some kind of crash in order to get out of it. And so I think that that is very relevant to the economy as well. So that is very likely. However, If we're just sitting around hoping that the crash will come and then everything will be hunky-dory after the crash, I think that is uh, a false way of looking at it. And that's why I think it is so important that we study, we get educated, we learn about the issues, and most importantly that we um, become active, we advocate for these same issues and these same values, but even more importantly that we walk our talk that we uh, engage ourselves in maybe, you know, starting cooperatives or working cooperatively, you know, for example, in your own organization, looking at those issues, are we working cooperatively? How much do we value the values that we talk about and how much do we actualize them in our work and so on? So I think both are important and that's why I think that examples are important. Let me uh, give one example. Last year, when I was in Denmark at the Proud Convention there, we had invited some people from the permaculture organization, a global permaculture organization. And as you know, they work um, with land use and how to often, on a small scale, small farm farmers coming together, developing permacultural farms. In other words, creating or recreating a farm the way it used to be where you had chicken and pigs and cows and, and corn and vegetables all, you know, growing together or utilizing the forest um, for harvesting and so on. So the people active in permaculture are very good at doing that. 
But when we came together, we both realized that, well, we in Prague, we are not so good at developing permacultural farms or permacultural villages, but we are really good at seeing the big picture. So we had some very interesting meetings and interactions, and uh, I think that it is important that we see the big picture, that we study the issues, we do the research, but at the same time that we also engage with people that are active on the ground. Both of those things are important because then we are creating examples of thriving economies, cooperative economies, and hopefully also people earning a living wage through these economies so that when there is a crash, we already have good examples of what is about to come. Another way of explaining this is in an evolutionary sense and going back to what we talked about earlier, I think, I believe that what we are seeing is the evolution in towards a more cooperative economy. This is something that is, in a sense, also in our genes, and it is an inevitable result of the global breakdown that we are facing. It is going to be the way that we will save ourselves. The growth of, of cooperatives is there. All of the systems that P.R. Sarkar talks about, and that's why I believe that uh, more than Marx, who was very good at pointing out the defects of capitalism, the strength of Sarkar, I think, is that he also pointed towards an alternative vision. And when we look at it, when we take it apart, for example, the three-tiered economy, it already exists. It is not something that Sarkar invented, you know, in the attic, and, uh, you know, when, when he had, uh, you know, a bright day, but rather he's putting the pieces of the puzzle together pieces of the puzzle that are already existing as an outgrowth of human evolution. So when I look at that, when I see that, and when I contemplate on those issues, it gives me tremendous hope and, and tremendous inspiration to move along because I know even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, it is bound to happen at some point. And because this is the way that we need to, to move in terms of human evolution. Perfect. George, I see that we have yeah. two more questions. Um, would you like me to go ahead and... Yes, please. Great. Please. So we'll start with David, and then after David, I see, um, Greg, that you have a question also. David, I am unmuting you, and you now have the microphone. Thank you. My question uh, has to do with some of the examples that you were talking about as far as economies where things are being effectively done along Sarkar's lines. In Norway, for instance, is the agriculture more like local family farms or more like American ag business? Let's start there. And it is from the agriculture standpoint, is, is that an example that we could point to? Okay, good question. Yes, I think that compared to the United States, I think that Norway has done a much better job at taking care of it farmers and it's because Norway is a mountainous country you know it's interesting because now that we are developing this farm co-op here on our land we ended up buying some equipment that I studied agriculture in Norway and worked on uh, in agriculture in my younger years and those machinery has been used on the small farms in Norway you know for the last 50 years probably 
These are small two-wheel tractors that are very good at working uh, steep uh, hills because it's very dangerous to drive a regular tractor on steep hills. So, you know, it just dawned on me that one of the reasons why Appalachia is poor is because they don't have that kind of equipment here. They're not used to using these kinds of tractors because you can grow a lot of uh, different things here. The climate is relatively warm, much warmer than the Norwegian climate. So, yes, I would say that um, Norway has done a much better job than the U.S. in terms of taking care of its small farms. But because it is a capitalist economy, it's not good enough. <laughs> so, And that's very frustrating because when I studied agronomy in the mid-70s in Norway, I could already then see the change. And I wrote some articles in some of the national newspapers at that time about this. You know, sort of, you know, I'm seeing the writing on the wall of what is coming to, to be. And so, yes, Norway has also had those changes, but not to the same extent that the U.S. has. Um, another example of a proud economy and probably the best in terms of a cooperative economy is the Mondragon economy in, in, in the Basque region of Spain, where you have um, 80,000 people engaged in, in several hundred cooperatives. And, and I think that is probably the, the best example of a functioning, very uh, effective and very successful cooperative economy. As I understand, nobody has been laid off uh, since the 1950s, what they do is they, they retrain people and they basically bring the worker from one co-op into another co-op whenever, you know, there's a problem with labor. These are some examples. So in Denmark, for example, you have uh, a strong cooperative housing movement where people live together cooperatively and, for example, they may share a meal once a week. Um, so rents are, are lower. They may have a kindergarten in their housing complex and so on and so forth. So that's very popular in, in Denmark. So these are some examples. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. So, George, I'm going to uh, move on to Greg's question here, but I just wanted to do a time check. How are we doing? Sure. I see we're up to 6.30. And, you know, there's a little bit more I'd like to talk with Roar about and perhaps others you know, want to stay on for a bit longer. I see a couple more hands have gone up now as well. So, you know, I'm happy at the very latest we'll end at the top of the hour. And let's just work toward that if that sounds good to you. All right. Um, so moving on to Greg's question. You're now live yeah. with the microphone. This is Greg. I'm uh, wondering, you know, one of my big fears is when we get some form of collapse and you get a vacuum and this country, you know, has a tendency for um, violence and all that type of thing. Is there sort of a, it's hard to say a formula, but can you see a, a best path for us during a, say, a, a heavy transition phase from capitalism to where we want to go to making it the least violent that we can in terms of the social aspect, I know we need to educate in terms of what we need and people to understand education systems, but uh, there's also the uh, the psychological aspect of uh, how we're going to behave um, in the middle of a, of a transition when people don't get their needs met 
And is, is there any kind of a, I haven't really read much on this. Do you have any kind of a, a, a opinion on the, the best way to uh, keep that to a minimum? <laughs> wow, that's a... <laughs> That's an issue that I've thought a lot about, and I, and I'm not sure I have a, a very good answer. I, um, I think that the United States is in a very unique situation in that, as you mentioned, there, there, there is this potential for violence. In the rural areas here where I live, everybody has a gun, and there is a tremendous fear of the government and many of the people that are my neighbors. They say they have guns because they're afraid of the government. And of course, in a situation where there is a collapse of the economy, where the infrastructure falls apart and so on, there will unfortunately be a tendency towards violence or safeguarding one's own resources and then other people who don't have them will want to steal and so on. A kind of civil war situation might develop. That is very possible in the United States. Unfortunately, because of the history of the country and also because of this love affair with uh, guns and and so on, and also the lack of uh, infrastructure. I think that something like that would be less likely in Canada or in Scandinavia, where the sense of collective economy and, and, and a sense that the government is not such an evil empire and so on. So that is a possibility, and, and how to avoid that, I think, again, is uh, more education. Uh, Sarkar said that the more intellectual a country is, the more aware the people in the country is, the, the more educated they are, the less violence in the crisis situation when, when there is a collapse. So again, I think that what you guys are doing, raising people's awareness, educating people, doing advocacy, is... Uh, part of uh, of that solution. It is important to educate people and to do outreach in the community where where we are. For example, here in in uh, where we are, you know, we are kind of strange people. You know, yogis, meditators that move into the the mountains, and so we we um, do as much outreach as we can, mixing with the local population, going to uh, concerts and, and activities, farmers markets and so on, so that we can, you know, make friends with the local uh, people here. Uh, so that kind of outreach is very, very important. Anita, do you want to take one more question from everyone else, and then I'll get back to a couple of my sure. own? Great. So uh, why don't we move next to John? Thank you. Uh, I have a Microphone. quick question that's been kind of at the issue, the central issue of capitalism. So how do you bring capital into a co-op? For example, I want to build an inn, and it's going to cost a million dollars. Now, how mm -hmm. do I bring capital in and still create a co-op? So capital, you know, we talked about this a little bit uh, the last time. So capital is important. There, there needs to be uh, um, a banking system. We, we can also... I have a cooperative bank for that. In, for example, in the Monogon system, they have a cooperative banking system. So yes, we need bank, we need capital in order to create businesses. Cooperative also needs capital. So in that sense, it is not that different from, uh, a, we could say, a simple capitalist system in which you borrow money from the bank to develop your business. So that will also 
be part of a cooperative economy. You borrow the money, but uh, the percentages will uh, can be lower because the need for profit is less. So there may be better terms uh, in terms of the loans and so on. And also the profit, again, will not be used for speculation as in a capitalist economy. But in many ways, the system of loans to uh, raise capital for a business would not be that different. Okay, but, you know, most banks require some equity. Like, say, if I did a project for a million dollars, they would require, say, $300,000 of equity, which I have to get from mm-hmm. some investor. And, you know, how, do, how does that investor get pulled in in a cooperative nature? Right. The, an investor will look at the business. Is this a viable business? Is, is this cooperative going to turn a profit? Is it viable? Because an investor will not invest in, any, in something that is not the, going to be profitable and successful. So, again, the same rules will apply for an investor as well. Problem roar here is one that you know really has to do with the nature of the hotel industry, which is that you know what we hope for are worker-owned cooperatives, obviously, and most of the people who work in hotels are people who are changing beds and aren't going to mm-hmm. have any money to actually invest in terms of becoming owners of the hotel itself. And I actually right, have right. heard of, of some businesses that allow their workers to gradually, gradually earn shares in the business, which seems like a very nice model to me. So they become gradually the longer they're there. Is that something Sarkar addressed at all? Yeah, so that's another model um, where, as you say, the workers in the business, as they stay in the business, let's say, uh, you know, after five years, they can have a certain share in the business. Yeah, that's, that's one model. But if you're starting a business from scratch, the money will have to come from somewhere. Sometimes, now, uh, um, John was creating one specific scenario, but another scenario could be that 10 people have, you know, $10,000 each, and they put that into a pot and they start a cooperative, you know, with uh, $100,000 uh, as capital. So that's another way of doing it, where the workers bring in the capital. So that can be the starting capital, and then because the business plan makes sense, then they could uh, loan the rest from a bank, for example. So there are many ways that this could happen. Right. It's such a great example, John, and thank you for raising it, because it, it so, for me, points to the inherent psychology of American business, because I am willing to bet there's not a single hotel owner of a hotel of any size who actually works in their hotel in any practical, normal way. Um, you know, certainly not changing beds and probably not even manning the front desk. It's almost the whole understanding that we have is, well, you know, someone who owns all the money is going to own this thing, and then a bunch of other people are actually going to make it happen. And we see those as two completely different sets of people with two completely roles in life. And that's Mm -hmm. just what capitalism has given us over, you know, all these generations of people being raised within it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that leads to a question I'd really like to get you to address because it's, you know, the very first principle of Prout is such a big one and such a um, huge issue, which is this idea of putting limits on individual wealth, or at least the idea that no one would be allowed to accumulate a lot of wealth without the consent of, you know, the collective. 
Can you address mm-hmm. that a little bit? Why is that the first principle, and could, would that ever happen? Right. Um, well, I, I think it's it's already happening in in different ways. Earlier, we talked about taxes. So taxation is one way of limiting wealth. And so a progressive taxation system, which we had in the United States in the 50s, 60s, and then it started to go away uh, in the late 70s with, when Friedman became the main economist or inspiration for modern American capitalism. And then Reagan bought into him uh, his ideas and the trickle-down theory and so on, reducing taxes for the rich. So that is one way of limiting wealth or putting a ceiling on wealth. So it is not a foreign concept even to capitalism. And the idea is that when the purchasing capacity of the middle class is strong, you have a more balanced and a more thriving economy. This we have seen, this we, this we know is what is happening. One of the reasons why we have a weak and unstable economy is because the purchasing capacity of the middle class is falling. And that's why we have all these speculation bubbles. Everybody, you know, wants to get in on the race and then we have a crash and then we never learn and then we start over again, you know. So the limit of wealth, I don't think, is totally foreign. So, for example, if we look at the example I made earlier that the average fast food worker makes about $19,000 a year, while the average fast food CEO makes $23 million a year in salary. So that's about 1,200 times difference in income. Let's say we, um, you know, we don't create the revolution, but we make uh, a moderate change and reduce that to 500 times. Yeah. I mean, I'm just using that uh, as, a, that as an example. It may be, you know, inappropriate here because of this uh, business, but if we compare Norway to the United States, for example, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I think, uh, as far as I remember, the difference between the average middle-class person in Norway and the top CEO in Norway is not more than 25, 30 times. It's much, much less than in the United States. The average CEO in Norway makes maybe, you know, a couple of million dollars. And then the, wor- the, the worker in that business may make, you know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, whatever it is. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about the math. So in other words, who decided that? Well, the Norwegian society decided that. Um, and, and similarly, Prout is saying that that's a fundamental principle that needs to be part of the economy. We need to talk openly about what the richest person should have and what the poorest person should have. That needs to be on the table because we are all sitting around the same table. We are a society. We are not a group of individuals trying to compete with each other. And because there are limited resources on this planet, in every society there's a limited amount of land, there's a limited amount of water and so on, and we need to share that. So that is, I think, one of the geniuses of the proud system is to acknowledge the scarcity of, of, of resources and the fact that we need to share it. And then we need to have a discussion about how to share the pie. Right. Makes good sense. When I try to think about, well, why is it that in the United States we've allowed our CEOs to get paid $20, $30 million and in Norway they're keeping it around <laughs> yeah. $2 million. I think it gets back to... 
the American notion of freedom. I believe exactly. that this country has a very specific notion of freedom, which is I'm free to do anything I want and no one's going to interfere with me. It kind of comes from the frontier mentality. I actually have a friend who is a fellow therapist here in California who wants to move to New Hampshire. And I asked him, why New Hampshire? And it comes down to the fact that he basically lights their license plates, which say live free or die. And New Hampshire uh-huh. backs that up a little bit with their taxation system and the rest. But I've really seen that Americans at a deep, deep level really want to be left alone to do whatever they want. Whereas Europeans seem to to be more willing to regulate their sense of liberty or their sense of do whatever they want for the common good. Do you have any insight into what to do about that? I mean, how are we going to get Americans to be more willing to (laughs) embrace a different notion of freedom? Right, right. You nailed it. Um, Well, the historical difference is that Europe had a long-term socialist evolution. The workers were fighting for the rights in Europe at a much higher rate than in the United States. So socialism came in to balance capitalism in Europe to a much larger extent than in America. And that is the main difference historically. So for this to change in the United States, we need to have a similar evolution or or maybe even revolution for that to change. And that's why, again, talking about these issues, getting educated, advocate for these issues is so important. Uh, The United States needs to have a similar evolutionary development. And in that sense, Lakoff is right on. That is something that the conservatives need to be educated on, need to learn, and, and that is, as we know, not so easy. But when we think about the fact that Bernie Sanders became so popular and may run again and maybe other candidates are coming uh, on board with similar values. You know, Bernie Sanders talked about Scandinavia as being the model that he was aspiring to. So I see changes happening in the United States. Most of the people uh, living here in the mountains where I am, they vote Democrat. And so I don't see that it is impossible to change them. I think that part of the problem in America is the the Christian values and the lack of the Democrats to speak to those values and support those values and at the same time speaking an economic value system that is really to the benefit of the same people. Many Christians have turned their backs on Democrats because they're not seeing any value in it. They're not getting anything because the Democrats don't really support them anymore. They don't stand for their needs. And also they don't believe in my God or whatever. And I I think that that's been a huge problem in the United States, that we need a party or, or a group of politicians that can really stand up for the middle class and the poor and to speak their needs and to support their needs. So that has been missing in the United States. But it existed in Europe for a long, long time. It is fading, and that's why we see these strange situations with Brexit and, and the return to conservative um, anti-immigrant values and so on. That is a backlash, and it's an unfortunate backlash. The reason is because of neoliberalism in the EU taking over the economy and, and the value system. 
It's a pivotal moment. It seems so clear to everyone now that just the world is in balance. And obviously, we need to do everything we can to shift the balance in the direction of a system that works for everybody. That's my mm-hmm. final thought. Yes. It looks like we're close to a wrap-up point. Do you have anything you want to say, Roy? There are no more hands up, so no one else has any more questions they want to ask. Is there any last point you'd like to make about your book or about EDA or anything else that's on your mind? Well, I am very thankful that you invited me uh, into this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I feel very honored to be part of your work. So I I wanted to mention that. And at the same time, I want to emphasize that I'm very hopeful, very uh, inspired by the fact that thinkers like Sarkar has presented ideas like Proud. I'm inspired by all the activists throughout the world that are standing up for change. They may never have heard of a system like Proud, which I think is going to rise up from the ashes, so to speak because it makes sense and, and, and because I think it is the direction that humanity is moving in. But those people that are working on the ground, these activists are uh, truly in, inspirational and important part of the change that we need to see. And so intellectuals and activists, positive warriors and uh, active workers <laughs> need to come together and, and create a better and more healthy and balanced society. And I see it happening in spite of all the negative things going on. Uh, I, I see great hope. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago with the Bernie Sanders movement, I see great hope for America as well. I, in many ways, my heart is more Norwegian than American, but I am in many ways inspired by America. I'm inspired by people like you guys. I'm inspired by all the alternative people here in Asheville that are into organic farming and community living and so on and so forth. There's a lot of positive energy in America. And so I have great hopes for for the future. And I think that the good will overcome the bad. And um, yeah, I think uh, we will do well in the end. Thank you so much for that, Roar, and thank you for writing the book. It's become kind of our textbook here for EDA. As you may know, we're actually going to run a second book study on it for people who want to do it again, and there's a fair number of people oh, in that wow. category. Yeah, there's a fair oh, number of people who felt like they didn't really get it the first time through, and then we're hoping to attract a whole new group to join with them, so the second time through we'll get into it a little bit deeper. And, That's great. You know, yeah, it really is great, and it, it really has helped us as an organization tremendously, I think. So thank you for uh, I'm so happy to hear that. Book. Great. Good. Well, yes, it's thank, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's really uh, it's nice to hear. Good. And thanks to everyone who's on the call. It's great of you all to have persisted with this book study this far. We know it's been an uphill hike for virtually all of us. And I hope you feel happy with the view from the top and really, really looking forward to working with you on EDA generally. We've got a conference coming up in June. We've got big plans for the education and outreach going forward. I hope you're all aware that we've got the cooperative charter process going forward. We really want your voices involved in that. And we're going to get our advocacy piece going very soon as well. So if you're looking you know, to stay involved with us as a positive way to keep influencing our future. That is just great. 
Thanks for being here tonight and looking forward to talking with you sometime again in the future. Bye for now.